and find ourselves in chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. Uh, there's a pew Bible in front of you. We'd love for you to meet us there in Mark chapter 6. It's towards the end of your Bible. As an FYI, in the front of your Bible, there is a table of contents. I know some of us are still learning our way through the Bible and where what books are at, and so don't be embarrassed by that. There is an Old Testament with 39 books and a New Testament with 27, and the table of contents shows you those books and the page numbers you could find them at, and uh, that's a great place to start when you're learning the books of the Bible. It is also a worthwhile thing to set those to memory. Um, I'm a t- there's a brother here at the brook. I'll leave him nameless. I challenged him to memorize the books of the Bible. I said, man, it would be good for you to do that as we're, as we're doing discipleship together. The next week, he's like, he said, hey, I memorized the books. I'm like, that's great, man, you know, because like, books like Nahum are really hard to remember where they're at. He said, Nahum, you mean the 32nd book of the Bible? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, or like, you know, Malachi, he's like 39. So brother memorized the books of the Bible and the order they're in from 1 to 66. That's driven, fam. So uh, you can do it. You can do it. And that's an encouragement to, to memorize your books of the Bible. Well, uh, from a, a news standpoint, this was a tough week of some really just sad things in our news. And uh, things that uh, made me feel in my heart where you just say, when you read a story, you just say, come, Lord Jesus. Let's put an end to this. Some of you may have heard about this story of this family in Arkansas where this mother and her boyfriend lived in this home and this man abused her daughter. And when the authorities found out about it, they asked the girl what her name was. And she says, my name is Idiot, because that's what she had been called. Then you read about this story in Syria about these airstrikes and this little boy named Omran who was dug out of rubble almost an hour of digging to find the little boy. And there he is, just stone-cold face and not a tear in his eye it just makes your heart wrench. And you hear of tens of thousands of families displaced in their homes because of flooding in Louisiana. I mean, we could just keep going on and on and on and on. And sometimes you just look and say, Jesus, this would be a great time to come back and put an end to this. Just come back, take your church, and let glory start now. Wipe away every tear. Let there be no more sin, no more death. You know, there are times in life that we're just perplexed. We're perplexed by what's going on, and maybe we're even perplexed by what God is saying or what God isn't saying or what God is doing or what God isn't doing. Maybe you're perplexed when your body starts to fail you, when your family rejects you, when your bank account hates you. You feel perplexed, and you're saying, God, what's going on with this? I need you to show up in these ways, and he's not coming through in the way you expect or in the timing you would like. And we, we, we know that life is filled with disappointment. And we're perplexed by it. And Jesus was no stranger to these emotions that people have. And so I find comfort in that. As we go through the book of Mark, we see consistently that people are perplexed by Jesus. They're surprised by the miracles he's able to do. They're surprised by his boldness and his teaching. They're surprised by what he's choosing not to do. And throughout the Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, at different times, we see that people expect Jesus to be a military king who establishes a kingdom on earth and does away with the Roman Empire that was keeping God's people, Israel, in somewhat bondage. And they kept thinking, Jesus, this would be a good time for you to get us out of Roman grasp, to flex your military might, and to deliver us from this 
taskmaster. And so they're perplexed by the fact that Jesus isn't doing what they want him to do. And we know as we see the big story of the Bible that Jesus had a different plan because he knew of a greater taskmaster that holds us in a deeper bondage, that being sin and death. And Jesus came to save us from that. But at different times in the New Testament, we see the disciples are just perplexed by all of it. Last week, we, we were in the middle of Mark chapter 6, and we saw that Jesus and his disciples um, had just finished a, a, a campaign of telling people about this good news message of turning from our sin and turning to Jesus. And Jesus is there, and his disciples are recounting what's going on, and he tells them, you know what, it's been a long journey for you guys. Let's get some rest. They go across the sea, and there are 5,000, over 5,000 people meet them there. The disciples are like, this is not too restful. Jesus starts teaching to them because he sees them. He has compassion on the crowds because they are dropping everything to come after him. And he sees them to be like sheep without a shepherd. And he wants to feed them the truths of God's word. And as the day goes on, the disciples say, hey, it's late, Jesus. It's late afternoon, perhaps early evening. The people are going to get really hungry. We're in a desolate place. There's no Walmart around here. Let's send them home so they can get some food. Jesus says, what have you got? They said, we found five loaves of bread and two fish. But what's that going to do with over 5,000 people? Jesus takes the loaves. He blesses them. Has people have a seat on green grass like a shepherd would do for his sheep. And there, 5,000 people eat of the bread and the fish as Jesus multiplies these things miraculously. And so we find ourselves at the tail end of that story this morning. Where now Jesus and his disciples are there, evening has come, and they're figuring out what to do next. Chapter 6, verse 45, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Jesus was dismissing his disciples before he got the crowd out of there. It's interesting that Mark uses the word immediately, which is a word he likes to use throughout his gospel. And it shows us the urgency of Jesus' actions. But it says that Jesus made the disciples get in the boat. The word made is really soft, actually. Because more literally is that he compelled or forced them into the boat and sent them off. And as I read that, I'm wondering, okay, what's going on here in this story? Why is Jesus finding it so urgent to get his disciples out of the picture? Well, maybe he's like, you know, I know these dudes are tired. I told them we go to this desolate place to rest. 5,000 people show up. There hasn't been anything restful. Go, guys, get some rest, perhaps. But I also wonder, in in John chapter 6, John tells the same story of Jesus feeding these 5,000. And at the end of the story, John adds a comment that Mark leaves out. Mark has different purposes in John. That's why he, he doesn't give us this detail. But John says this, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You see, it seems that when Jesus fed the 5,000, the people were quite impressed. And they recognized Jesus' ability to do miracles, his ability to teach as no one's ever taught. 
And they were ready to make him king even now. So I got to wonder, perhaps Jesus is sending the disciples out because he knows that they could fall prey to this understanding. What's the problem with that understanding? Well, The problem with that understanding is that that's not what Jesus came for. He didn't come to become the king on this earth right now. He came to wear a crown of thorns. And so he sends his disciples away, and he goes up on a mountain to pray. He goes on a mountain to pray, verse 46. After he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray, to pray. Three times in the book of Mark, and maybe a fourth time that's implied, we find that Jesus gets away by himself to pray. And each of those moments, it comes after his mission to be our Savior is put to the test. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus is healing people and casting out demons. And it says in chapter 1, verse 35, that his fame began to spread everywhere. And that the whole city showed up at his front doorsteps asking him for help. And then we're told that the following day, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. You see, for Jesus, prayer became a way for him to realign himself to the mission that God had put him on. Jesus came for the purpose of putting his life down as a ransom for many. He came to seek and to save what is lost. He came to be a physician for the souls that are sick. And so when that mission was put to the test and the pressure was on him, Jesus wouldn't budge. He went alone with his father and prayed. We see the same thing take place in Mark chapter 14. When Jesus tells his disciples, I'm about to be betrayed. And his disciples said, Jesus, we'll never leave you. We'll never leave you. And Jesus says, by the Day this, by the time this day ends and the rooster crows three times, Peter, you will deny me three times. And at that time, Jesus goes away to this garden called Gethsemane and gets on his knees and prays. See, Jesus knew that prayer with his father, talking with his heavenly father, would realign him to the mission. And though Jesus says, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. This, this mission I'm on, this death I'm about to die, this wrath I'm about to endure, would you let it pass if it be your will, but not my will, let your will be done. And Jesus surrendered himself again and again and again to his Father's will to purchase us. See, for Jesus, prayer, as I've said before, was not a bailout plan, but it was his launch pad, his starting point, and he cried out to his Father, I think in our own lives, we get this mission drift where we begin to lose sight of where God wants us to be and what he wants us to do. God has made his mission for you and me, his purpose for your life and my life very clear. The big picture is God has made us to bring him glory so that people would see our lives and look to this God that we serve. That's the big picture. He's called us to spread this good news and to make disciples and yet a lot of things in life can cause our mission to drift, our belief in the gospel to drift, our identity in Christ to be forgotten. And church, what I want to do is remind us that we've got to come before God in prayer as Jesus did, especially when we begin to lose sight of what he's called us for. When despair begins to sink into your life and doubt about your faith and discouragement 
when you start feeling like you can't be forgiven or that God doesn't love you anymore, we know these aren't truths because the truth now is beginning to drift. And we get on our knees before God and cry out to him is when we can realign ourselves with our Father's mission and the identity he gives us when we put our faith in Jesus. If you find yourself dry in your Christian faith today, maybe as we're singing these good news, this good news of the gospel, and you just feel like, it's not exciting to me. I'm in a dark place. The only way you get out of that is by crying out to God and say, God, I'm in a dark place. Please get me out of it. And so what we need to do is get back before God and pray. You see, Jesus wouldn't nudge under the pressures the culture and society and his followers were putting on him. And so often, I know you, me, we, we feel that pressure to begin to bend under other, other people's opinions. As Jeremy Riggs mentioned in our call to worship this morning, I know a lot of you youth and young people are going back to school in just a week or two. Maybe some of you have already started. And you know there's going to be all kinds of pressures on you. Classmates who want you to be someone you know you're not. And you're wondering, can I be a Christian and have these friends still? And you're starting to contemplate the compromise. And so for our young people, I want to say, cry out to God and say, God, help me be firm in loving you. For our men... I want us to escape the societal pressures to compromise, to be passive and irresponsible men, but embrace God's design to be men who lead, who are courageous, who are pure, who want to honor him with our lives. We got to do that through prayer, fellas. For our sisters, escape the societal pressures of body image, of what people might say is beautiful, of how your acceptance is felt and embrace God's design of being theologically rooted women who are courageous in their faith, who know who they are and who what their identity is because of Jesus. And that victory happens in prayer. You see, God has placed a mission and a calling and a purpose on the lives of all who are his children. And society will put pressure on us and we'll feel perplexed at different times of what to do. And God calls us to pray and to reorient our eyes on Jesus. Jesus went up on the mountain. And I think of Psalm 121, where it says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. You see, here Jesus wants to, re- wants to refocus. And his mission to save people was put to the test. He prays to his Father and stays on ask. That's what God has called for us to do. And we see here, the story picks up, verse 47. When evening had came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. See the different scenarios? Land and sea. Verse 48. And Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. You see, Jesus is up on this mountain. He's praying to his father. He sees his disciples out in the distance in the Sea of Galilee. And he sees these brothers just struggling at the oars. They're just rowing their boat as hard as they can. And they're making very little progress. Very little progress. Mark says that their headway was painful. They were digging their oars into the sea and not going anywhere. 
It was evening time when Jesus sees them there, struggling at the sea. You know, it's interesting to me how Jesus, when he tells his disciples to get on a boat, usually bad things happen. You notice this? In chapter 4, we saw the storm that came on when Jesus said, let's go out into the sea. Now he tells the disciples, hey, get in this boat. He forces, he compels them to get in the boat. And now they're there rowing their heart out, and they're like, is this really happening? He's up on the mountain, and we're here struggling. And so Jesus sees these disciples there. But what we come to understand it, again, God has a purpose and a plan, even in this test for the disciples. Because just as the crowd was tempted to want to make Jesus king and misunderstand Jesus' mission, so too were the disciples tempted to misunderstand Jesus' mission. They were perplexed by him. And what Jesus wants to do in this story and what he's going to do is demonstrate to them what his mission is about because of who he is and his identity. So he goes out to them and it says, in verse 48, he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And at about the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., it says he came to them walking on the sea. One more thing. Jesus notices that they're struggling around what time does Mark tell us? He says, evening. And then it says around 3 a.m., he goes out to them. I'm thinking, Jesus, what were you doing all that time? I mean, was there some, like, delight in this? And you know what it tells me? That even in our struggle, God has a plan. And we feel like God has forsaken us, and I'm sure the disciples are mad at Jesus not knowing that he's watching them from the mountain. His eyes are on them. And oftentimes when we're going through struggles, we feel like God's taking his eyes off of us, but it's very much the opposite. He's working out his purposes, and what were his purposes? At 3 a.m., between 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea, walking on the water. He was walking on the water, guys. Do you find that amazing? (laughs) You see, what's going to happen in this story is we're going to start seeing different things unfold where Jesus is trying to say, hey, I want you to pay attention to who I am. Because if we study the Old Testament of the Bible, there's only one who can walk on the water. In the book of Job, chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, Job is speaking, he says, Who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble? Who commands the sun and it does not rise? Who seals up the stars? Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? What's the answer to Job's question? It's God himself. God alone has created all things. And God alone walks upon the waters. And Jesus here walks upon the waters. Jesus has a point to prove here for his disciples who are confused about his mission. But not only does he walk on the sea, it says there in verse 48, he meant to pass by them. Okay, now I'm really confused. So you see them struggling. You wait another, what, six, eight hours. And then you show up and you don't intend to help them? You see, but again, something is going on here. He intended to pass by them. So I think about this in the book of Exodus. God's people had just created two golden calves in the wilderness. 
And they worshipped these idols while Moses was on a mountain getting the Ten Commandments. And when he comes down from the mountain, he throws the tablets on the ground, and he's crying out, what are you doing? These golden calves, are these what got you out of Egypt with these plagues? Is this the one who led you through the wilderness? Is this the one who parted the Red Sea? No. And at the end of that story, Moses goes into the tent of meeting, and he starts praying to God, as was read earlier in our service today. And Moses is like, God, if you're not going forward with us, I'm not going with these people. If, you're, if your blessing is not on our, going in and com- our, our coming in and going out, I, I want nothing to do with it, God. I'm not taking another step without your presence in our lives. And God assures Moses his presence because Moses cries out to God. And then Moses makes this daring request. He says, God, show me your glory. And what does Yahweh, the God of Israel, say? You cannot look upon me and live. But he tells him, hide yourself in a rock and I will pass by you. I will let my goodness pass by you. And here Jesus on the sea intends to pass by his disciples. And I just can't help but think that this moment he's expecting them to see Yahweh, the God of Israel, walking upon the sea, passing by and seeing his glory. Jesus had a plan to show himself to his disciples. He meant to pass by them in verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, a phantasma in Greek. And, he, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. You notice whenever the disciples distance themselves from Jesus, they're usually followed by distress. And now Jesus is coming closer and there's going to be some peace on their radar. Immediately he spoke to them. He said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Family, this is amazing. The words, it is I, literally in Greek, is these words, ego, eimi. Can you say that? Ego, eimi. These are the same words that Jesus speaks when he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the true vine. Before Abraham was, ego, me. And so here Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. I am. And some of you say, so? I am what? Well, again, with Moses. In Exodus chapter 2, he sees this burning bush that's not being consumed. And God tells Moses, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt and set my people free and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses looks at God and he says, God, whom shall I say sent me? And God says, tell them, I am sent you. This is some Christology here. Can you say Christology? That's a theological term for the study of Christ. Jesus here in Mark chapter 6 is saying, I walk upon the waters as Yahweh walks upon the waters. I pass by and show my glory as Yahweh pass by and show his glory. I am the I am as Yahweh is the I am. This is Jesus speaking to them. Therefore, he says, do not be afraid in the storm. Don't be afraid in the trial. When you're digging at the oars, struggling at life, don't be afraid because my eyes are still on you. I am still at work. I am still God. And you may be perplexed 
by what I'm doing, but know that I have a purpose and a plan. See, Jesus is telling his disciples to set their eyes on God and take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. You see, oftentimes we do like the disciples and we're in our struggle where life is tough. We're frustrated. We're perplexed by what's going on. And what we do is dig the oars into the sea and row harder. We pick up more hours at work to make more money and be more miserable. We, we try to work harder to get people's approval and we lose who we are. We go around from relationship to relationship trying to find acceptance. We keep digging at the oars. When God's telling us, get up on the mountain, pray, look to Jesus, look to him who is God in human flesh. You see, as one writer says, in storms, adversities, and defeat, human self-sufficiency is revealed for what it is, human insufficiency. Love that. Let me read that again. In storms, adversities, and defeat, human self-sufficiency is revealed for what it is, human insufficiency. If you want to be self-sufficient, you're going to find it to be insufficient. But when you're God-dependent, it'll be God-sufficient. And this is what Jesus has in store for his disciples as the one who walks on the waters, as the great I am, truly God in human flesh. See, God wants, Jesus wants to increase the disciples' trust here. And as these truths are being declared to you, I believe that's what God wants for you to do. And I ask you, how does your belief in Jesus grant you comfort in the middle of your struggles? How does your belief in Jesus increase your trust in him? You see, because what we believe affects how we live. And if your Christology, your understanding, your theology of Christ, that's Christology, if your Christology is off, your life will become off. If you're told the Christology that Jesus makes life easy, you will always be perplexed when it's not. It's bad theology. When someone says always God's will, that you will be always healthy and wealthy, that's bad theology. People die. We get ill. But Jesus says, look to me. I'll provide for you. I'm the good shepherd. I bring you to green pastures. I feed your soul. For those who say Jesus wasn't really a man, that he can't sympathize with our weaknesses, that's bad theology. Jesus was truly man, and he knew the struggle the disciples had. He knew the lost sheep personally. He knows temptation like we know it and never failed. Because good theology says Jesus was truly man. Good theology also says that Jesus was truly God. And there are many cults out there that deny the eternal existence of Jesus, that say he is a God created by the Father, but not eternal God. That's bad theology, and it's not true. You're either God or you're not. You're not God or a God. You're God or you're not. And if you're God, you're eternal. And Jesus is God. And because he's God, he can deliver on the promises he makes. That's good theology. Or maybe a bad theology we begin to let in our minds is that God cares, just not about my problems. You see, Jesus is showing to the disciples that just as he had compassion on the sheep that were without a shepherd, he also has compassion on his people 
who are in the middle of the sea. And so indeed, good theology tells us Jesus is our shepherd, that Jesus is God, and that Jesus is at work in our lives. You see, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible tells the story of Jesus. His fingerprint is everywhere. The thread is interwoven throughout the pages from Genesis to Revelation. And so from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, it says God was over the creation and he spoke it into existence. Jesus was there. And in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin and God confronts them and sin enters the world and they see themselves naked and God says to Eve, I will raise up one of your offspring who will do an, and make an end to that serpent. He will crush his head. Jesus is in those pages. Jesus is from Genesis to Malachi and Matthew to Revelation, showing us that he is our God and sufficient. Well, what did the, what did the disciples do at this point? They were sent out into this boat. They struggled like it was nobody's business. It's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. This wicked storm all of a sudden ceases because Jesus steps into the boat. What are they going to do? Verse 50, I'm going to back up and read again. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Verse 51, And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astonished or astounded. Yes, they were. Verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. You get this like screeching halt. What just happened here? Jesus gets into the boat, the storm ceases, and it said they're still trying to not, they, they still don't understand the whole loaf incident. And their hearts become hardened. This is wild, isn't it? Here, Jesus, in the clearest of terms, has displayed himself as truly God. And the disciples have no space to receive that at the moment. Their hearts became hardened. See, God is always in the business of making himself known, but a hardened heart inhibits faith. A hardened heart inhibits faith. And so the disciples were still tripping up over what happened when the feeding of the 5,000, perhaps thinking that Jesus should have established his kingdom at that point. You got a great army, 5,000 men here. You're doing the miracles. You're teaching greatly. Jesus, this would have been a good time to show up. He didn't do it. He didn't meet their expectations. And what it did was lead them to a hardened heart. Church family, God will not always meet what your expectations are, but his character is always good and merciful and gracious. And so we have a choice in these moments when God makes himself clear to us, when he shows us and reminds us as he's doing for you right now, he's telling you to trust him. Will you harden your heart? Or will you say, Jesus, I just want to trust you. The disciples, confronted with the option, took the road of hardened hearts. To me, this is, it's astounding what unmet desires can do to the human heart. 
Now, eventually, as Matthew tells us, the disciples come around and they begin to worship Jesus in this moment. But Mark leaves that out because Mark wants us to see the humanity of the disciples because you know what? That's me and you in that boat, isn't it? It's me and you who find ourselves walking in their chanclas. We're in their sandals. We're in their shoes. And we see their failures and we're like, man, I do that, God. You come through. I don't know how many times and tomorrow I didn't get what I wanted. I'm a, I got a hard heart now. And so we backtrack to when Jesus sent them out and he's watching them on that mountain. He's got a plan in their struggle. And ultimately the outcome is to call you to either worship him or to let your heart be hardened and resist him. What are you digging at the oars at today? Maybe you're battling a sin in your life and you've been digging like crazy and haven't surrendered to Jesus because ultimately you don't want to give it up. Maybe there's a decision you know you need to make and you're afraid to make it. Maybe there's some adjustments you've got to make in life to accommodate what you know God is calling you to do. Whatever it is, I tell you today, stop digging the oars in. Look up to the mountain where Jesus, God and truly man, intercedes for us and works on our behalf and works for our good and calls you to put your faith in him. See, this story of Jesus walking on the water is more than just him showing off that he got skills. It's him calling you to surrender all to him. And truly, that's what we want to do, church. We want to be those who say, God, I don't want my self-sufficiency to be revealing itself as insufficiency. I want to hold on to you and be God-dependent, not independent. So we go forth, church. That's God's, God's call for your life. And for others of us who know that God has been calling you to give your life over to him, you know that your life doesn't please God, you know that you need Jesus, you know you need God's forgiveness, you know all the good things you've ever done don't add up to the rebellion in your heart. And so what we, I pray is that today you would surrender that to Jesus. As we close up our service, we're going to sing a song, and we'll have a prayer team in the front and in the back. And this prayer team is there to help you walk through these challenges, to pray with you as God stirs in your heart for the ways he wants you to respond. And, of course, our prayer team also, church, is here for whatever burdens you've got. Maybe you've been feeling perplexed, and you know God's calling you to trust him, and you don't know how to do it. You just need someone to lock arms with you and to cry out to God, maybe even when you don't know how to do it. This is the gift of prayer, and that's why Jesus went to his Father, to prevent that missional drift, church. So I want to pray, and then I'm going to ask us to stand after that and cry out to God and sing out to Jesus. Let's pray.